Tomorrow, the World Health Organisation convenes the 13th meeting of its Council on the Economics of Health for All. And the WHO's assembled a who's who of progressive economics. One of them is Jayati Ghosh, Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. As well as being on the WHO Council, Jayati is also on the International Commission for the Reform of of International Corporate Taxation and the UN Secretary-General's High-Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism. Professor Ghosh, welcome to Sunday Extra. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Professor, the WHO's Council on the Economics of Health for All has as its purpose to reframe health for all as a public policy objective, which is no small brief. Uh, Could you tell us about your experience of being on the Council so far and what's on the agenda for the 13th Council meeting this week? Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, when you say that it's no small brief, brief, I have to confess that the brief is even bigger. Or rather, <laughs> we are trying to be even more ambitious. We really want to reconceive the economy as one that works for health for all. In other words, the way that things happen at the moment is that we're always told to think of everything that happens as necessary for the economy. You have to suffer this particular thing because that's what the economy needs. You have to undergo austerity because the government needs to do this because of the economy. You have to sacrifice some aspect of well-being because it's necessary for the economy. That's how what we're always told. What we want to do is to reconceive the economy to serve the needs of society and of the planet. We want to move away from the idea that uh, people, societies, and nature are all there to serve the economy, and instead argue that the economy is a human and institutional construct that needs to be adjusted to serve the needs of people. And also that it has to happen within planetary boundaries, with respect for nature, in harmony with the environment around us. And when you say we, the council does seem like uh, sort of the progressive economics equivalent of an all-star team. Uh, Could you tell us a little about the different people and the different perspectives that the WHO Council on the Economics of Health for All brings together? Yes, it's it's a wonderful team. First of all, we have this absolutely amazing chairperson, Mariana Matsukato, whom I'm sure you've heard of. Yes. She is not just a rock star economist, she's one of the finest economists I know who has a remarkable ability not just to be innovative, but to cut to the chase on essential things. And she doesn't allow herself to be, uh, shall we say, conned by bullshit. Excuse my language. (laughs) That's okay. She's, uh, so she's been uh, a, a tremendous inspiration and also a lot of fun to work with because I think she also wants to make the council something more than a talking shop. We really do uh, consist of a bunch of people who want to see things change and who have very clear ideas about how to change. Having said that, there's a lot of variation within the council, and that's also good. It's very important to have different kinds of voices coming from different places. So we have Vera Songwe, who was the head of the Economic Commission for Africa, as you know, and uh, uh, comes from a a very strong background in terms of institutional finance for Africa. And so she is much more used to dealing with mainstream financial institutions and, uh, you know, considering what they might uh, be able to provide and how we need to work together with them. We have uh, Stephanie Kelton, who is a very well-known 
uh, economist, uh, one of the proponents of modern monetary theory in the US, but who brings a, a very sound discussion of the limits of looking at budgets as, as if they are household budgets, so looking at government budgets in a very simplistic way and uh, you know, constantly prodding us to extend the macroeconomic perceptions of how much you can spend and why and how. We have Zelia Profeta de Luz, who is a wonderful uh, worker from uh, Brazil in Latin America. She has a lot of experience working in health systems, in health innovation, and in the social aspects of health. We have Ilona Kikbush, who has been very influential in the World Health Organization and in the World Health Summits, which she has been helping organize for many years. She is a professor of public health and social policy at uh, the Graduate Institute in Geneva, but she has very uh, strongly been associated with uh, health movements and the health architecture that's trying to be developed in Europe as well. We have Vanessa Huang, who represents um, if you know private finance. She's uh, associated with uh, private uh, organizations and uh, venture capitalists who actually fund health in innovation. So she brings a private sector perspective, which is often sorely needed because some of us tend to be, uh, let me admit myself, uh, I also tend to be excessively public oriented <laughs> in my focus. <laughs> so it's important to have that. And of course, we're very fortunate to have Marilyn Waring, who is absolutely iconic in terms yes. of her contributions to the idea of GDP, the idea of economic value, what matters for people and what should matter for the economy and who makes the contributions to the economy. So we have a very wide range of people. I hope you've noticed that they're all women. <laughs> I have uh, indeed. <laughs> it wasn't really by design, or so Mariana says. She said she thought of the best people she could think of and uh, it turns out that we were all women. <laughs> <laughs> As it often is. <laughs> Professor, uh, is this concept of health for all a concept that is uh, actually or adequately measured at the moment? There has been a lot of work done on the idea of health for all in the World Health Organization, and they have developed it quite uh, significantly. We have talked about it in some of our policy briefs, and we have tried to explain the notion but the essential point is this, is that health has to be seen not in terms of public health, private health, or just you know provision of services. It has to be seen as an essential part through the life cycle for everyone, which means that it must be accessible to everyone. And of course, you can't get that unless you also ensure nutrition for all, affordable, good quality nutrition for all, unless you have sanitation, unless you have access to different levels of services, primary, secondary, tertiary health services, unless you have knowledge about the different ways in which you can live, conduct your life, unless you are able to avoid various kinds of occupational health hazards and so on. It's a very big ask, really, health for all. It's not easy. And therefore, it also needs what we have called an all-of-government approach. The idea that Health should be the domain only of health ministries, which typically have very little power and very few finances. That is something that we are combating. We're saying that ministries of finance have to be involved, ministries of infrastructure, ministries of energy, all kinds of ministries have to be involved because all of them affect health. Pollution, for example, a big problem in the city of Delhi, where I come from, 
uh, is a critical element in determining the state of health. Um, so we really need to have an all-of-government approach. We need to have a holistic way of looking at not just what health for all is, but how we get there. And then we have to think about what we need to prioritize in order to get the economic policies that would move us in that direction. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Professor Jayati Ghosh, who is one of the all-star panel on the Council on the Economics of Health for All, convened by the World Health Organization. Uh, Professor Ghosh, you, you mentioned Vanessa Huang coming from the uh, the private sector, and one of the Council's key priorities is proactive engagement with economic and financial leaders. I wondered how much of that has occurred and, and whether the Council's agenda, well, receives more than lip service in in those very numbers and data-driven quarters? I think you've put your finger on what is a problem. There is no doubt that I don't think we're getting the traction that we need and deserve. Uh, yes, there is some engagement with the World Bank. There is some you know, attending of IMF meetings. There are some appearances and meetings with G20 and so on. But these are largely... Uh, symbolic. They have not translated into clear and definite actions. Uh, For example, the World Bank has come up with a financial intermediary fund, which was a response to uh, proposals made in the context of the pandemic of how we really need to have a fund that is available for rapid response in periods of crisis and emergency like the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, Some commissions that were instituted in that regard suggested that we have a fund. And of course, this fund, now the World Bank is seeking to situate it, and it set a basic framework which we felt was deeply wanting and really uh, did not capture the kinds of things we would like to see. So we have written a commentary on what we believe would be a more desirable financial intermediary fund, FIF, which would recognize the voice of all the participants so that it shouldn't be a sort of donor, recipient, patronage kind of model. It should be one in which all countries participate. Everyone is a donor. And then the resources are allocated according to specific criteria and needs, which are not sort of driven by the donor fads of the time. And so we have given a set of proposals. Uh, We're told that they're being considered, but we have seen no evidence that this has actually changed the way in which the World Bank proposes to have this financial intermediary fund. Similarly, we've produced a number of policy briefs, which, uh, well, of course, I'm biased, but I think they're (laughs) rather good. But one of them is about the the financing for uh, innovation. And we make a number of important points. Of course, we need private finance. Of course, we need private involvement in the innovation process. And definitely, we can't do this without public-private partnerships. But we have argued that these must be governed in a way that the innovations that result are publicly available. What we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic was actually a bit of a disaster. We saw especially rich country governments spend quite a lot in terms of R&D and subsidies and all kinds of other promises to private companies, to big pharma, to enable them to develop the vaccines. So they were developed, I would say, 90% with taxpayer money. 
And yet these companies were then allowed complete intellectual property rights, all the patents and industrial design monopolies, which have enabled them to profiteer out of what is really a global calamity. And it has allowed them to prevent the production of vaccines in the rest of the world, which has been disastrous because the inability to vaccinate the entire world as quickly as possible has allowed for the emergence of mutant variants. And that means that we keep getting waves and waves of this disease when we could easily have avoided it. So while the development of the vaccines itself was a tribute to what you can achieve when governments put their mind to it, provide the subsidies, rope in the private sector and work in a coordinated way, that was a remarkable success. Yet the subsequent rolling out of vaccines and the implementation and the monopoly of knowledge that was involved was both unnecessary and I would argue destructive because it really reduced the supply of vaccines, prevented significant parts of the developing world from getting vaccinated in time and has given us, as I mentioned, successive waves of this disease so that no one really knows how it will end. Professor Ghosh, you've personally called for transformative fiscal policies based on a fair and just fiscal contract. I wondered if you could explain a little more for us what that would look like and whether, to your knowledge, it's been done anywhere in the world yet. You know, it's very funny that we sometimes get transformative fiscal policies when we least expect them. Consider what's happened in the advanced economies. For years, we were told, even after the global financial crisis, that governments can't spend more, it's impossible. The only way to achieve any kind of recovery and then growth is through monetary policy. And we had the biggest monetary policy expansion ever seen in the history of capitalism for about 10 years and more than a decade, right? Massive, what was called quantitative easing in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, and elsewhere. When the pandemic struck, suddenly it seemed all that fiscal conservatism wasn't relevant. Suddenly governments could find money out of the hat. And we found that they were able to spend unbelievable amounts of money. The United States alone, between $25,000 to $30,000 additional public spending per capita. But it was extremely concentrated. The rich countries accounted for about 85% of that additional spending. The United States alone accounts for about 55% of that additional spending. The less developed countries, the uh, low and middle income countries spent much, much less. And uh, most of the time, it was because the same fiscal austerity and fiscal discipline kinds of mantras that were floating around as the, as the basic attitude of governments were still applying to them, even though advanced governments had rejected it. So the capital markets enforced this discipline on low and middle income countries, which meant that they couldn't spend in the same way to recover, to make, make sure that their citizens had minimal social and economic rights, that they got some social protection during the pandemic. Many countries ended up spending more in debt repayment during the entire two years of the pandemic than they did on health. And so, you know, this is an example of unjust fiscal policy. What we have advocated is a, a much more uh, imaginative and I would say eminently feasible strategy in which the fiscal policy is not pro-cyclical. It doesn't add to business cycles that you spend less when you get less tax revenues and you spend more only when you get more tax revenues. Instead, we've argued that just as it was for the rich countries, fiscal policy in the 
uh, low and middle income countries should also be anti-cyclical, should also go against the current and make sure that a period of a downswing does not become a terrible slump and that people do not suffer unnecessarily during that kind of situation. We've also argued for more progressive taxation. Across the world, taxation has become very regressive, both for individuals and for companies. So small and medium enterprises in almost all the countries of the world end up paying much more in terms of taxes on their profits than large multinationals, because the large multinational companies can shift their profits around to low tax jurisdictions because of a very archaic global tax system. So we have argued for a reform of that global tax system, whereby multinationals should be made to pay at least as much as local companies. And you can do that by treating that company as one company, not as, you know, let's say Amazon India, Amazon US, Amazon France, Amazon Japan, but as one Amazon. And every country gets to tax its share of the global profits of that global company determined by sales, employment, users, in the case of digital companies. So there are many ways in which we could improve. Similarly, we've argued that you need a much more progressive taxation and including wealth taxation, because we know that wealth has just dramatically increased and gotten more and more concentrated, certainly over the last decade, but particularly since the pandemic started. And we really have to rein that in. You can only do that if you have asset registers. So you have to create asset registers across the world and then share that knowledge so that, again, individuals can't simply move their wealth out to tax havens and avoid paying the same as everyone else. And we have argued that we need globally more resources to be made available to low and middle income countries in the form of the IMF special drawing rights, and similar measures, which would enable them to cope with health emergencies, to provide more resilience in times of crisis, and also just to meet the sustainable development goals, which otherwise we are simply not on track to meet. And just finally, Professor Ghosh, in your recent article in the publication International Politics and Society, uh, you wrote that the inertia, clunkiness and simple inability to cope of the multilateral institution set up in the mid-20th century is now painfully apparent. Uh, I wondered, is the WHO Council on the Economics of Health for All an exception to that observation? Well, we are not really part of the WHO. We're an independent council that gives advice to the WHO, and we hope to other institutions as well. So um, I think the WHO has a slightly better model than, let us say, the IMF and the World Bank. But also there are, and everything international necessarily has to have a certain amount of delay. You have to get everyone on board. There are all kinds of multiple pressures to cope with. But I think the international financial institutions, also because they're so central to any global solutions to the challenges that we all face, they are really not fit for purpose right now. Uh, they are, first of all, far too driven by the, uh, the specific short-term agenda of a few rich countries, specifically the United States and a few European countries, or G7, simply put. They are uh, very caught up in a kind of overly bureaucratic, technical sort of accounting view of how to distribute money without recognizing that we are facing global challenges that require global public investment. 
and therefore they should be seeing these in those terms. We need international financial institutions that are fit for the global challenges that we face, because otherwise there's no point in having international institutions. If they will take three years to decide on having a debt restructuring process at all, and then another two years to finally get five countries on board, and then another two years to decide the three of those countries don't really deserve it. When we know right now that 54 countries are on the verge of debt default, then there's something terribly wrong in that system. It obviously has to become much faster, more flexible, more responsive. There have been complaints about all the international organizations, but I would still say that the WHO commands a greater legitimacy, certainly among people in the developing world, and that it is seen to be more fair and more equitable in its responses. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, Professor Jayati Ghosh. Thank you so much for joining us on Sunday Extra. Thank you. And Professor Ghosh is Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a member of the World Health Organization's Council on the Economics of Health for All, which is about to have its 13th meeting. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.